This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to The Corporate Casket, a bi-weekly series where bad businesses go to die. We'll discuss anything and everything from bad charities, terrible CEOs, and businesses that have a lot to hide. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the wedding industry. I think a lot of people know the dark history behind engagement rings and how it once symbolized husbands owning wives, and the fact that the wedding industry can be predatory towards brides, Personally, I don't want anyone to look at this video and think that I'm telling you you absolutely should not wear an engagement ring or that partaking in wedding traditions is scummy. If you want an engagement ring or not, a traditional wedding or not, or however you even define a traditional wedding, that is totally up to you. I just don't like when I see a particular industry trying to take advantage of someone because they're going through a very special time in their lives. And the only thing I really want people to think coming out of this is just how to be more of an informed consumer. Getting married is an exciting time and going through the process of planning a whole ceremony can be super stressful. And there are people in the industry that are more than willing to take advantage of your naivety and your vulnerability. So I'm hoping that this episode can be an interesting look at the history of engagements and maybe a little tool for brides-to-be on how to navigate this industry. So let's get started. Now, engagement rings have been around for quite a while, though anthropologists believe the tradition comes from a Roman custom in which wives wore rings attached to small keys, indicating their husband's ownership. The GIA or Gemological Institute of America even suggested that gold bithronal rings were popular in Pompeii as early as 79 CE. And if you know what happened in Pompeii in 79, then this is a little awkward. But apparently Romans would wear iron rings at home and a gold one went out in public. Pope Nicholas I even played a part in this whole timeline when he proclaimed that engagement rings signified the intent of a man to marry in 850. He said gold was the standard simply due to the metal's popularity at the time. Some sources say that in ancient Egypt, these rings were made from reeds to symbolize one another's betrothal. However, the first documented and often referenced case of a diamond engagement ring was in the 1400s. In 1477, Archduke Maximilian of Austria commissioned the very first diamond engagement ring on record for his betrothed Mary of Burgundy. This sparked a trend for diamond rings among European aristocracy and nobility. The sentimental Victorians popularized ornate engagement ring designs that mixed diamonds with other gemstones, precious metals, and enamels. Often these rings were crafted in the shape of flowers and were dubbed posy rings. Diamond rings crafted during the Edwardian era continued the tradition of pairing diamonds with other jewels, commonly mounted in filigree settings. The Archduke also supposedly commissioned the ring to have long and narrow diamonds in the shape of the letter M for Mary of Burgundy. 
We could get into diamond mining right now, and that is unfortunately an entirely different topic, but we're not gonna go down that road today. The point is diamond, gold, and elaborate rings slowly became customary. Diamond started to gain popularity in the US by the 1930s, and it was all thanks to one ad campaign in particular in 1947 that cemented the idea of a diamond engagement ring in our minds. One ad campaign that birthed the famous slogan, diamonds are forever. Edward J. Epstein's book, Have You Ever Tried to Sell a Diamond? explores this event in some detail. Not just how diamonds became popular, but why we value them as expensive in the first place. It's called the diamond invention. And according to The Atlantic, that invention is surprisingly recent. Epstein traces its origins to the discovery of massive diamond mines in South Africa in the late 19th century, which the first time flooded world markets with diamonds. The British businessmen operating the South African mines recognized that only by maintaining the fiction that diamonds were scarce and inherently valuable could they protect their investments and buoy diamond prices. They did so by launching a South Africa-based cartel, De Beers Consolidated Mines, now De Beers, in 1888, and meticulously extending the company's control over all facets of the diamond trade in the ensuing decades. Most remarkably, De Beers manipulated not just supply, but demand. In 1938, amid the ravages of the depression and the rumblings of war, Harry Oppenheimer, the De Beers founder's son, recruited the New York-based ad agency N.W. Ayer to burnish the image of diamonds in the United States, where the practice of giving diamond engagement rings had been unevenly gaining traction for years, but where the diamonds sold were increasingly small and low quality. Ayer, the Atlantic continues, didn't market a diamond or a brand, but an idea. Fashion designers began discussing the trend towards diamonds and press stories and high society newspapers reinforced the link between diamonds and romance. In 1946, Ayer was providing 125 leading personalities with descriptions of diamonds worn by movie stars. Then in 1947, they commissioned a series of portraits of engaged socialites. They claimed their goal was to spread the word of diamonds worn by stars of screen and stage, by wives and daughters of political leaders, by any woman who can make the grocer's wife and the mechanic's sweetheart say, I wish I had what she has. Ayer made diamonds the envy of women everywhere and their strategy paid off. In the late 1940s, just before my grandfather started hunting for his diamond ring, an air copywriter conceived of the slogan that the beers had used ever since, a diamond is forever. Even though diamonds can in fact be shattered, chipped, discolored, or incinerated to ash, the concept of eternity perfectly captured the magical qualities that the advertising agency wanted to attribute to diamonds, Epstein writes. A diamond that's forever promises endless romance and companionship, but a forever diamond is also one that's not resold. Resold diamonds, and it's maddeningly hard to resell them as Epstein's article details, caused fluctuations in diamond prices, which undermined public confidence in its intrinsic value of diamonds. Diamonds that are stowed away in safe deposit boxes or bequeathed to grandchildren don't. Between 1939 and 1979, De Beers wholesale diamond sales in the United States increased from 23 million to $2.1 billion. Over those four decades, the company's ad budget soared from 200,000 to $10 million a year. Even if you were to account for inflation, that is still massive growth. The fact that I'm sure many of you watching this have heard the phrase, a diamond is forever, really speaks to how much of impression they left on the world at the time. And yes, I mean the world, not just the US, because once they found success, they entered Japan's market and aggressively marketed diamond rings as tokens to modern Western values. And surprisingly, it actually worked. 
1967, when the campaign started, less than 5% of engaged Japanese women had a diamond ring. By 1981, that figure rose to 60%. Japan became the second largest market just behind the US for diamond engagement rings. And those numbers are insane because this became so ingrained in society and tradition, it took a while for things to actually start changing. After all, this tradition had some deep, deep roots. For decades, diamonds truly wore forever. In the 1980s, the agency introduced a series of ads setting a new arbitrary but authoritative seeming benchmark. Isn't two months salary a small price to pay for something that lasts forever? It isn't until recently that things have shifted towards diamond alternatives. Lab-grown diamonds, as well as diamond alternatives, have become more and more common, in part due to price and in part due to ethical dilemmas around diamond mining. According to CNBC, there's less millennials getting married and more often getting married later, so that's another factor to consider. Their article states, millennials increasingly value experiences over things. Young couples would rather put their money towards a wedding or honeymoon than blow the budget on one ring. Even though I do feel this way, I would rather use my money for a house, a car, traveling the world when it's safe to, all of that would be over spending that money on a ring. But I can obviously still respect those that feel differently. How you and your fiance spend your money is your business after all, it's not really mine. And if you do wanna buy a diamond, there are now ways to check that it's ethically sourced, made in a lab, or using recycled or reclaimed diamonds. But if a diamond isn't your style, that's fine too. And I don't think anyone is obligated to have a diamond ring for their engagement to be seen as legitimate. According to a different article by CNBC, millennials don't want what all their friends have and don't want what they've been told to have, said Amanda Gizzi, a spokeswoman for Jewelers of America, a trade association with more than 8,000 member jewelers. In an attempt to counteract the trend, the Diamond Producers Association, a global trade group of seven of the world's leading diamond producers, launched an advertising campaign to win over the hearts, minds, and wallets of millennials. Its slogan is, real is rare, real is a diamond. This effort follows the relaunch last fall of the iconic A Diamond Is Forever advertising by De Beers, the world's largest diamond marketer. Association CEO Jean-Marc Lebier added that millennials really relate a lot to what a diamond is and the idea of a diamond, but a little less to all the rituals and conventions that are associated with it. He said the new marketing campaign includes social media as well as radio and television. BOFAML estimates worldwide retail sales of diamonds will grow just 2% this year, well below the 7% compound annual growth rate from 2009 to 2014. The US remains core to the diamond industry with an estimated 42% share of the global market for diamonds, according to DPA figures. The US market is actually what's helped maintain the overall worldwide growth rate in recent years. The Chinese and Indian markets, which were the strongest engines of growth from 2010 to 2014, have slowed. Meanwhile, RBC expects diamond supply will exceed diamond demand until at least 2020. Also, their research suggests that growth in synthetics will become an even greater challenge to natural diamonds in the future. I'm sure everyone is different in this and there's plenty of millennials that still want diamonds, but generally speaking, millennials are responsible for the slowdown in the diamond industry. And hey, if alternatives are cheaper and more ethically sourced, then frankly, I'm all for it. One source says that one of these alternatives is a white sapphire, a lab-grown stone that costs pennies to make. Some say no one would know the difference at a glance. They're durable, unlikely to chip or crack, and as a bonus, they come in a multitude of colors. Sites like Brilliant Earth, which market conflict-free diamonds, even have compilations of stunning diamond alternatives. 
And as a side note, I know that a couple years ago in 2017, Brilliant Earth was indicated to have an inventory where some of the sources was apparently coming out of India, not from Canada. This apparently came from a YouTube video from a supposed diamond industry insider named Jacob Worth who made the video and Brilliant Earth ended up taking them to court. They sued for defamation and the suit was discontinued with prejudice and without any disbursements, but the video was taken down. So do with that what you want, but they're still interesting for information even if you don't purchase from them because of that. So they list moissanite, crystals that are the second hardest mineral in the world behind diamonds, sapphires, aquamarine, morganite, emeralds, rubies, and amethyst. So if you've got your heart set on a diamond, that's one thing, but if you're not, there are plenty of options out there. However, now we're gonna change gears and get into the part of the episode where there may not be many options where the cost is high and the idea of having an inexpensive wedding sounds like an impossible task. So let's move on to the wedding industry itself and its predatory nature. So the first thing I wanna tackle is the wedding tax. The idea that the cost of a wedding is artificially inflated and venues or businesses charge more when they hear a product or service is for a wedding. And the thing is, there are some good valid reasons for this tax, so I will start there. The fact is, as some sources explain, an updo that may cost less than $100 on an average day can cost a couple hundred dollars on a wedding day. Because on a wedding day, it has to hold for longer, the hairstylist has to consider how it will look when photographed and how it will look under a veil. A photographer may charge more than what they normally do for a standard photo shoot because there's a lot more planning involved. Nicer equipment is used and there's travel expenses and there's significantly more retouching and editing involved. The wedding tax may be real, but this isn't 100% because of businesses jacking up their prices willy-nilly. In part, it's because of the intense expectations put on those businesses to make everything absolutely perfect. If the stress and standards weren't so high, then maybe the wedding tax wouldn't be either. We've created a wedding culture that promises women especially delivery of a fantasy that they've been concocting for most of their lives, which is some crazy high stakes. Lily, host of Avowed Podcast says, I would say that of all the service industry jobs I've ever had, it is the most stress and anxiety because you are trying to measure up to someone's pretty unrealistic expectations of perfection. A party is a party. A wedding is supposed to be a dream. Or in far more blunt terms, as Catherine Rampell of the New York Times put it, bridezillas keep our prices high for the rest of us. It sucks, but hey, perfection does come at a price. So I won't pretend the wedding tax is never valid. However, now that we know some good reasons for this wedding tax when it does exist, let's get into the not so great reasons for this tax and the absolutely insane nature around wedding industries to begin with. And let's take a moment to pay some bills and thank today's sponsor, Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. And at Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and many more. I'm actually finishing up listening to a book right now called You Look Like a Thing and I Love You by Janelle Shane. And it's a book that's just dedicated all about like questions you have about AI and how AI helps us in everyday things and how it comes to the decisions that it makes, like what a Harry Potter fan fiction made by robots is like and how a computer can make the perfect sandwich. It was a fantastic lesson. I'm pretty much towards the end of it, I think. And it gets me excited to think of all the other nonfiction books of just weird things about our world that I can learn about. And all while just doing chores, relaxing, running around the house, doing whatever, it's really great. 
So if you wanna get started today, make sure to visit audible.com slash casket or text casket to 500-500. And if you're on your computer, you can just go to audible.com slash casket or again, text casket to 500-500 to sign up for Audible today. One analysis I liked is that the wedding industry is stuck in a whole snake eating its own tail cycle, as one source puts it. High expectations means higher costs. And if something costs more, then you have high expectations and people often expect more because they have been told it's the happiest day of their life by culture, by television, and by the industry itself. You should expect to spend 30 to 40% more on a wedding, says one high-end planner who works in New York State. When I contract my own rate for planning, I'm trying to remember wedding culture and trying to account for this being a heightened day, more important than the birth of a child for a lot of people, he tells me. This is the biggest day they've had in their whole life or they're planning it that way. That's high intensity and often high stakes. That's also high stress. For a party, there is most likely one person involved, the host. For a wedding, there is the couple plus parents plus other assorted familial associates. And still explanation after mostly reasonable explanation, it is hard to shed the foreboding sense that we're all being played. For one thing, pricing information is startlingly difficult to compare. They don't give you any pricing information until you get on the phone, sighs Larissa, a Vancouver-based marketer whose attempts at email correspondence were met largely with silence. Mine were too, which felt more reasonable because I'm not getting married. The vast majority of vendor websites offer some version of a contact us form, please specify occasion or a phone number. And only once you've explained your needs and been congratulated on your impending nuptials, are you quoted something like a number, which leads to the feeling that perhaps your quote is just a little too personal, too tailored to their perception of your uniquely bridal needs. There's no way of knowing, that's the point. A lot of this is unfortunately common knowledge too. The industry is so littered with unrealistic expectation that sites have articles purely devoted to squashing them. MarketWatch says that there's an unsurprising amount of disappointment that can come from wanting the perfect day. And some of those disappointments are things you wouldn't even think of. For instance, Travelers, an insurance company, reports that of wedding insurance claims filed last year due to vendor problems, 21% involved caterers going out of business and an additional 11% were related to DJs going out of business or not showing up. In a recession especially, vendors and caterers can and will go out of business, leaving a couple in a tight spot. Hell, some of those vendors like Loring Pasta Bar in Minneapolis even have a bridezilla clause in their contract. Charging overly detail-oriented brides and grooms $5 an email or $12 per 15 minute increments of time required to respond. Thankfully, this clause seems more like a joke than anything as it has yet to be enforced, but it speaks to how easy it can be to fall down that hole. Alan Fields, co-author of Bridal Bargain says, it's lose-lose. The industry creates this bridezilla character and encourages that behavior and then says they have to charge you for it. And as MarketWatch continues, weddings have become increasingly stylized with magazines and planning sites pushing small details like monogram petit fours, elaborate place settings, and letterpress invitations. Too much attention to detail can quickly become a budget buster though, says Keen. Couples spend an average of $322 on table centerpieces, $294 on reception decorations, $206 on favors, and $70 on escort place cards, according to the wedding report. On resale site Tradesy Weddings, former brides and grooms try to unload past purchases, recently including a window pane seating chart, $500, a bird cage to hold well-wishers cards, $125, and decorative twine balls for $400. 
There are lots of layers of tradition, fake tradition and wedding industry sell job, Keen says. The way weddings are presented is in a lot of these little details because it's what you can sell. Yet even more sources say that bridezillas aren't real. They're overworked. I don't completely agree with this because I mean, inconsiderate people do exist. And I'm sure some bride or groomzillas can be genuinely spoiled inconsiderate people too. However, I do agree with the idea that it's really easy for someone to become this stereotypical fussy bride or groom when there's that much pressure on their shoulders. Jess Commons of Refinery29 goes on a pretty eloquently worded rant on the topic and says, Ever since we were little, weddings have been marketed to women as the biggest day of our lives. From wedding Barbies to weddings at the end of Disney films, girls grow up with more exposure weddings than any other adult event. And although we eventually grow out of wearing a pillowcase on our head and walking sedatedly through the living room to the tulsit tones of our little sister playing Here Comes the Bride on the Kazoo, our education continued. No one is immune to how we talk about weddings. Celebrity weddings are Googled at all walks of life from reality TV stars with their rhinestone gowns to the royal weddings watched by millions around the globe to rock stars married by a shaman on a canoe at the exact point where three rivers meet in the Amazon. Weddings or humanist ceremonies or civil partnerships or whatever are a thing. And it's impossible to avoid how seriously society takes them. My point is with this level of buildup, is it any wonder you've seen incredibly together women crumble like a biscuit in a toddler's palm when the caterers say no, providing cuts of chicken in the shape of the happy couple's faces won't be possible or women who are wildly competent in the workplace crying over an order of service at 3 a.m. Because how women are expected to live up to this day that others have been planning for them since they were born, what hope does even the most organized of us have in creating a day that impresses our family, our partner's family, 17 different groups of friends, and still lives up to Meghan Markle's wedding? How on earth are women going to do justice to a day like that? Like it or not, they've been percolating away in their brains for the better part of 30 years? It's impossible. Obviously not all women go bridezilla. In some cases, it's the groom who goes hog wild. But here's my plea. If your friend goes full carry in the run up to her wedding, let her. Hell, join in and smash the place up with her. Unless she's a truly terrible person, the pressure she's feeling is not her fault. It's the fault of a society that's got weddings all wrong. That's turned weddings from a celebration of love into a big day to spend money on. Personally, I've never been someone that dreams about their wedding since I was a little girl, but many brides have. And I mean, you know, many of my friends have to some extent. And I think it's pretty fucked up how much pressure is put on pleasing everyone else when a wedding should be about celebrating the bride and groom or bride and bride or groom and groom and their love for one another. Despite all this, there's almost no escaping the very real pressure of weddings. So the next question left is to answer why. Why are weddings so expensive and extravagant in the first place? because weddings weren't always the giant affair that they are today with an expensive white dress and a cake that reaches the ceiling. And I'm aware that not all weddings are like this, times are changing, but a lot of these traditions are still expected. So let's dig a little bit deeper then and see how they evolved to become this happiest day of your life ceremony. The best source I found for comparing the history of weddings to modern day is a book by Vicki Howard called Brides Inc. I know a lot of sources that mention the history of weddings tend to refer to the history of weddings as we know it, or the history of specific traditions. And I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that. What is the history of the wedding in general and why have a showy wedding at all? 
Well, according to Brides Inc., before the rise of the lavish catered affair, American weddings defied generalization. In the colonial period and early Republic, regional differences abounded, the result of religious, social, and geographic factors. Many unions were formed without much ado and marriages took place without state or church sanction. In the colonial period, informal marriages were widespread among white settlers with limited access to church or state officials. Informal or common law marriage decreased in Northern colonies by the 18th century when officiants were more readily on hand, but it persisted in the Anglican Southern colonies where the required church clerics were few and far between. Couples made reciprocal promises of marriage and then moved in together, declaring themselves married. Pregnancy or childbirth also served as an indication of marriage. By the early 19th century, informal marriage was much less common, but persisted in the South among poor whites and among slaves. Weddings in pre-industrial America fit into the seasonal rhythm of everyday life. In the country, the celebration of a marriage brought entire neighborhoods together. For some, weddings were big events characterized by inclusiveness and reciprocity. At communal activities such as barn raisings, apple paring bees, corn huskings, quilting bees, and sleighing parties, those attending were rewarded by a neighborhood dance. A marriage might mean food, drink, and revelry, or perhaps just a special meal for the family. But mainly, it was about the establishment of a new household. Well, maybe it's just me, but this sounds a lot more fun and less stressful than weddings as we know them today. A sleighing party with a wedding thrown in? Like, why can't couples do that today? That sounds kind of fun. You have a snowball fight, sled, then head inside for hot cocoa, a few vows, and say, I love you, let's do this thing forever, and a nice dinner. There's no mention of worrying over floral centerpieces, the wedding dress, and if the bridesmaid match perfectly with each other. And look, I'm not planning a marriage right now. So, you know, maybe I am overlooking and don't understand the importance and how significant and special it becomes when it's time to get married. But I know I'm not alone in wondering how all this pressure and all these traditions came to exist in the first place. If these were once just chill parties, then how did they become such elaborate affairs? Well, the short answer basically is that rich people wanted to show off their wealth. And I'm not even kidding, as Bride Inc. states, Increasingly, middle-class weddings were celebrated with more elaboration, formality, and regularity, and greater expenditure. As historian Ellen Rothman has argued, the formal wedding began with Northern elites in the early 19th century and later spread to the middle classes. In the early 19th century, most middle-class Northern couples married in quiet, informal home ceremonies that required little advanced preparation. Invitations were sent on average only one week ahead of time and were often verbal or handwritten. As ceremonies were small, there was little display or pageantry. Bridal attendants were uncommon. Gifts were not yet customary. Printed invitations and bridal attendants, however, soon spread beyond the elite to middle-class white Northern brides. Lavish wedding receptions were sometimes even accompanied by formal menus. This really was, at its core, just a way for rich people to show off. Hell, that goes for the wedding dresses too. A wedding dress wasn't common at all until Queen Victoria chose to forego the royal tradition of wearing coronation robes when she married Prince Albert on February 10th, 1840. She wore a fashionable white gown that was featured in newspapers and magazines around the world. Shows like Adam Ruins Everything even made fun of this, showing a more realistic bride looking at Victoria and saying, she thinks she's so good in her more than one dress. After all, white was pretty impractical color back then and elaborate dresses you'd only wear once seemed like a waste. Women just typically wore the best dress they had. The book Brides Inc. says that it wasn't really until the 1920s that the jewelry trade, magazine publishers, department stores, and bridal consultants all played a role in tying weddings to commerce. 
According to one 1927 trade writer, beginning with the engagement ring, there is a constant string of events taking place that calls for merchandise that does not end until the last anniversary of the wedding is celebrated. Weddings opened the way for a lifelong business relationship. And damn, is that business relationship a lengthy one? Just like our history with the engagement ring, it's become so standard and so often expected. I'm honestly a bit surprised that weddings haven't been these giant expensive events for longer, but if you think about it, 100 years isn't that long for a tradition. Perhaps that's why in the past few years, it's a tradition we've seen broken more and more often. And again, for the record, if you want a giant expensive wedding, feel free to do what you want with your own money, not telling anyone how to live their life. My argument is simply that it shouldn't be so expected. Anyway, moving on. The New York Times wrote in 2017, according to The Knot, the average cost for a wedding in 2016 was $35,329 with higher averages in places like South Florida, Chicago, and New York City. That's a lot of canaps, cocktails, and cake. While average wedding costs have ballooned, however, guest lists have shrunk. The Knott's 2016 Real Wedding Survey reports that the average number of wedding guests was down to 141 in 2016, compared with 149 in 2009. While there are no firm numbers on how many tiny weddings occur in a given year, experts said more couples were choosing to streamline their nuptials, trim the fat, and go micro. Christina Friedrichsen, founder of IntimateWeddings.com and author of Intimate Weddings, planning a small wedding that fits your budget and style, understands why couples are embracing the shift. There is an overall trend towards minimalism and simplicity, and that goes for weddings too. Planning a traditional wedding sounds like hell. And even though micro weddings may come with their own headaches, I'm sure at least it seems like a smaller headache. Surveys say that millennials don't just prefer smaller intimate weddings, but they're changing the industry as a whole. Business Insider says it goes past the wedding, however, and that millennials are changing marriage itself as a whole. Their article states, marriage is getting a generational facelift. The reasons are many. Often the children of divorcees themselves, millennials tend to fear going through one. So they're being strategic when it comes to love. They're taking more time to find the right partner, cohabiting before legally committing and signing prenups to protect their assets. As a result, they're bringing the divorce rate down. Many millennials are also delaying marriage for economic reasons. Burdened with financial struggles like debt, they want to become financially successful first. And as more couples come together from different cultural or religious backgrounds, they're more likely to pay for multiple ceremonies. Millennials are driving what experts have estimated is a 24% decline in the US divorce rate since the 1980s, Hannah Smothers reported for Cosmopolitan. Many millennials fear breakups and are taking more time to find the right partner to avoid an unstable marriage. They're also taking time to get their financial act together first, like establishing a career and paying off student loan debt so they can enter marriage with less stress. More couples are cohabiting before marriage, as much as a six-fold increase from their parents' generation. In another move contributing to a decline in divorce rates, insiders Kim Renfo reported in 2016. A study published in 2007 in the Journal of Marriage and Family found that living together has become a part of the pathway towards marriage. Some couples are even buying homes together before getting engaged, prioritizing home ownership over marriage. Even though not everyone will agree with this new way of things and everyone is free to choose what works best for them, I personally agree with really taking your time to meet someone who's right for you. I know a lot of couples that have purchased their house before getting married and in that way, that is their commitment to one another. And there's nothing wrong with prioritizing financial and home life stability over a fancy expensive party. 
The way we see weddings is changing and hell, even the pandemic has its role in that too. For many, downsizing isn't just an option. Now it's become a requirement. NBC News reported Miranda Gang's upcoming wedding celebration looks drastically different than the one she had been planning in her head all her life. About a month ago, the bride-to-be rescheduled her May wedding to November, cut her guest list from 150 attendees to 50, and opted for a more economical floral arrangement than the one she originally envisioned. Wedding culture is usually sold as your perfect day, and once that wasn't possible anymore, I saw the reality of what I was spending on one day, and it was a wake-up call, Gang said. I spent half a year looking for and interviewing vendors. I had huge Excel spreadsheets noting all the nitty gritty details and it became all very complicated and I just couldn't be bothered anymore. Gang recognizes that other brides whom she has connected with online through Facebook groups and Reddit threads swapping ideas about how to plan during the outbreak are more distraught than she is about the change in their wedding plans. She said that because her wedding is far enough out, she was able to choose how to downsize and then realized she didn't actually want the added frills. Her fiance is a teacher whose hours were recently reduced, solidifying her desire to spend on the things I want to spend on. My mindset shifted completely and I felt more free once I started looking at it as a regular party, Gang said. I realized I was influenced by my friends who had these grand events and when costs started racking up, I shrugged it off as normal. I mean, when I think about the idea of getting married, the ceremony itself has never been like particularly exciting. Like I was like, ah, cheap dress, cheap whatever, but the honeymoon, I just, I don't know. I just feel like there's other things that are more important, like the experience of going on a honeymoon or, you know, having a house when you return home, like things like that are just more important than one day where you spent like hundreds of dollars on food to appease a bunch of people that you probably don't really care about them all being there. But at the end of the day, it really matters whatever would make you and your fiance happy and to heck with what everyone else thinks. But seriously. With all of that being said, that is where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed it, a little history lesson with a little bit of a look at what is the wedding industry all about. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, follow, subscribe, whatever you're listening to this on, make sure that you are following so that you never miss every time I upload a new episode. I upload every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So thank you for making it to another episode and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.